morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, we're continuing our series uh, in this uh, gospel. Uh, the gospel uh, that uh, Matthew has shown us, or that teaches us, this guy named Matthew traveled around with Jesus, um, and uh, yeah, he was an outsider, and he's telling us this story about um, this Jesus who was also an outsider. So uh, in Matthew 1 and 2, we've already covered those chapters. Um, we uh, are still in Matthew's introduction, by the way. It's going to last uh, for a little bit longer. He's introducing us to who Jesus is, and he starts off by introducing us hinting at, just saying outright, really, but in this veiled way, that Jesus is a king, right? He gives us this line, this pedigree. He is of Abraham. He is a descendant of this person, David. He is this promised king that everybody has been looking for, but he's not a king like anything we've ever seen before, right? He highlights that because he sets up what happens with Herod, this this worldly king, this powerful king who just had so much money, so much influence, and Jesus is born in this guy's backyard, Right, and born a king in this in this in this world in this time when wealth and power well you know it's always been that way hasn't it wealth and power were so important and Jesus is born into a world without wealth without power without influence it seems so so you're set up already with this question in Matthew of he's a king but there's guys like Herod in the world how in the world can this Jesus born poor and wealthy and an outsider to a a people who are under subjugation to the Romans, how could he possibly ever match up to Herod? So we've been introduced to him as a king. Matthew's also introduced us to him as, um, as Emmanuel, right? This word that means God with us, right? He is, um, the eternal son of God that the Holy Spirit created human in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, eternal from time everlasting, always has been, always will be, but also born a human, a man named Jesus, which means uh, he will save us. Yahweh saves us. And so he's this God-man, 100% divine, 100% human, and he's born into this world, and he says that God is gonna take away, God is at work to take away our sins, right? So that's how Matthew's introduced him to us, the kind of things that he's highlighted for us. And then we get to chapter three. Uh, let's, let's start. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, so John the Baptist is this, uh, he's just he's this weird dude, right? Uh, I mean, he's just living out in the desert, eating what he can find, um, and it's, it's odd. And he, it, there's a temptation to read this, you know? And I kind of want to just scoot past it, right? Because what's comes next is, 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 is so great. But uh, here's an interesting thing. Um, it seems important. M- matter of fact, John's ministry was so big. There's this ancient historian that everybody refers to, a guy named Josephus. Um, it, he talks more about John's ministry than he does Jesus's. That's how big John's ministry was. Like the whole, everybody's going out to see him and Josephus makes this huge deal about what John is doing. Not only that, the reason we can't just skip past uh, John the Baptist is because um, all four gospel writers mention John the Baptist. 
Two of them don't mention Christmas. But all four of them mention John the Baptist. How fascinating. So clearly he's important. And I don't think it's just because of the size of his ministry. I think it's important because John is, at least Matthew is telling us this, John is this one that they've been waiting for. Uh, All of Israel has been waiting for this person who's going to come and proclaim a truth before God comes. They all mention Isaiah. They all see him as this, this fulfillment of this Isaiah prophecy. From Isaiah 40, it says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her welfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. They are waiting on this crier in the desert and John shows up. And not only does he show up, uh, he shows up looking like Elijah, right? So in Malachi 4, 5, uh, we're promised that, uh, that, Malachi, that, that this Elijah character is going to come first. Behold, I'll send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great, awesome day of the Lord. So before the day of the Lord, before this, this big thing that God's going to do, Elijah's going to come back. Somebody that's like Elijah's going to come back. And here is John showing up in the desert, crying like Isaiah, but also dressed like a prophet. Second uh, Kings describes... Elijah saying he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist and they said, yes, that's Elisha the Tishbite. So John shows up in the desert as one that is to be the one that announces God's about to do a mighty work. God's on his way, he's gonna do this mighty thing so they're waiting for this person to come and John shows up clearly and so people just recognize who he is, they recognize this promises about him that he's, and he's, they come out to see him. And here's what he's saying. He goes out in the desert, and this is what he says. He, uh, go to Jerusalem, and all the region, Jordan, going out to him. And, um, and he was saying this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he has this message. Hey, uh, it's an urgent message, right? Hey, something's about to happen, and here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to stop living the way that you're living, stop the orientation of your life and completely turn it around. And here's why you need to do that. You need to change the way that you're headed, change your thinking and feeling, the things that you rely on, and instead turn it around and return to God. And here's why. Because he's coming. That's his message. God's day is at hand. You need to repent because this is happening. And so people are just coming out in droves. And they're coming out to the Jordan, right? So uh, this, that's where he is. He's there in the Jordan baptizing people. The last time, or the, kind of the big story that we kind of think of the Jordan River uh, is this guy named Joshua, way back, long time ago. This guy named Joshua, right before they crossed out of the desert and they crossed into the promised land, they had to cross the Jordan. And here's Jesus at the Jordan, or sorry, here's John at the Jordan baptizing the symbolism is to communicate. Matthew's trying to communicate to us that it's just like they were about to go into the promised land, they were about to be saved and rescued and brought into the promised land, an even bigger promise is about to come to be. We're at the Jordan again, another promise is happening, and John is there with all of this, this messianic imagery, just all this amazing stuff happening. People, it's just a big revival. People are coming out to him from all over to be baptized, and he's baptizing them. And what he's saying to do, uh, what he's saying is that God is coming to rescue us. 
So God is coming to rescue us, so you need to get prepared. Make straight the way of the Lord. Uh, So when kings would travel, when kings would arrive, uh, it was best if you were a small city, if you were a town, and a king was coming to arrive, it was best to get get your house in order, right? Make straight the paths. All the damaged roads, they need to be be fixed up, right? Because he's gonna come. All the ways that would prevent him from coming into the city, you need to get that straight. And so he's using this imagery, he's using this language to say, hey, God is coming, what are you doing to prepare? for this what parts of my life do I put up barriers in yeah hey where are you putting up barriers to this king he's coming whether you want him to or not best to let him know that he's welcome and so uh, that's what's happening he's coming out there and he's preaching this message of of repentance He's, uh, and he's telling them what to do. Hey, listen, it's just not that you're supposed to go, yep, I've done that. It's that, hey, I want you to be baptized. This, this image of the washing away of sins. Also, by the way, a new thing. Nobody's really ever done it this way before. I mean, baptism existed, but not like this. I mean, even, even the Jewish people would baptize, but they baptized, they baptized Gentiles that wanted to become Jewish. And he's calling Jewish people to be baptized. and saying, like, you too need to be baptized. So he's calling them to repent. He's calling them to come up there. And here's what you need to do. You need to repent and then do this thing. I want you to engage in this activity of being baptized, this image of being washed away, but also of putting to death sin in your life. I want you to proclaim what's going on internally with this external sign. So people are coming out to him, and that's what's happening. He is basically screaming that they have to get right. Because God is coming. You violated God's law, get right, because he is coming. Part of this is not just the being baptized, and part of it's not just the repenting, but a critical part of repentance is confession. It says that he's baptizing them as they confess their sins, and he's baptizing them. Confession is a... Look, before you can deal with an issue in your life, you gotta admit there's a problem, right? Before I can make any kind of change, I have to say, here's the problem. There is no repentance without confession. And so he's calling them to confess their sins. Here's who I am, here's what I'm living for, and I have to confess before I can ever, ever change. Uh, repentance is a key part of the Christian life. Uh, one of the things, there's this guy, huge moment in the world history, this guy named Martin Luther, not knowing what he was doing really, just wanted to have a conversation with some people. He took a list of 95 things he wanted to talk about, and he tacked them to a door, because that's just what you did back then. Hey, here's an announcement. I want to get together. We're going to hang out and talk theology. Here's some things I want to talk about. One of the things that he wanted to talk about was repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong act of the Christian. Changed the world, by the way. Wars brought out, broke out, all kinds of stuff happened. This is crazy. Uh, unintended consequences. But Luther did this, and he highlighted this reality that we see in Scripture, that it is not a one-time thing. Hey, you know what? I confess my sins, and I repented, and then I just moved on with my life. The Christian life is this constant acknowledgement this constant confession, an entire life of constantly repenting. Because when we hold these things inside, when we keep them to ourselves, when we try to hide them, they just eat away at us, don't they? Uh, It says in um, Proverbs, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 
And this amazing psalm, uh, David, uh, David uh, prays this in uh, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they'll not reach you. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many of the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you of upright heart. And then John writing to some people said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I say all that because I think that confession and repentance, it feels like a thing that, it just, I think maybe it's just a part of the Christian life for so long in my life that I just hated. Because it felt like I was just constantly beating myself up every single day. Uh, another day I didn't live up to it. Uh, another day I didn't live up to it. I tried as hard as I could and another day I couldn't live up to it. So this confessing and repenting to me just felt like just constant abuse of myself and I, I just was never ever gonna make it. And so I think I began to hate it and then you get older in life and I began to just you know, go through a season when I just ignored it. And you know what I found over time? The thing that I didn't confess slowly ate away inside of me and was way worse than confessing. And what I found was since God was faithful and just to forgive, it was no trouble. Matter of fact, the Bible says it is his eager joy when we come to him and confess our sins and repent to forgive us. Repentance, I think that growing in maturity in Christ, when you're young and you first start walking with Christ or young in the faith, there's this tendency when you slip up to withdraw and to hide, and to feel bad, and to just not talk about it, not think about it, maybe it'll go away. We want to pull the covers up over our eyes and pretend like it's not happening. And as you grow up in faith, the more and more and more you learn, the more and more you run to Christ, the more and more you learn how much he can be trusted, and when you stumble and fall, you jump up and you run to your father, because you know what he's like. He's justful, just and faithful to forgive. He forgives because it is his pleasure. He forgives because he is graceful and he forgives because it is just. It's just for him to forgive because Christ has paid that price for us. What a beautiful picture of the way that we're supposed to live. When I screw up, I don't just beat myself up. I, do, I run to my father and say, I've done it again. And know that he loves me. And know, and, and I, yes, I repent, but that confession is no longer this deep, deep, embarrassing burden, but it is a joy to go to my father who says, I forgive you and I love you. Now go and live differently. Go and live better, right? And then gives us the strength to do that. There's this beautiful, beautiful picture. And I think repentance so often gets a bad rap in my own thinking. And I think possibly in, everybody, in a lot of people's thinking that it's just this thing that we're not supposed to, that, we're, that we just have to, when we're forced to confess, when we're caught, we confess, but never until then. And the Bible says, man, God is just so faithful to forgive when we confess and we repent. What an amazing, amazing thing.
So here's what's happening. He's teaching these things and he's preaching this stuff and, and he's baptizing people. And um, then this happens. I'm making a big ruckus. Verse seven. Uh, he saw that many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming for baptism. And he said to them, well, so hold on a second. So John's out there saying, listen, you guys are doing the wrong stuff. You're not acting right. You need to act right, right? You're, you're following the wrong things. You're pursuing the wrong stuff. You're going after the wrong things. You need to act right. And so here come the religious people, right? So you're like, these are John's people, you would think, right? Like these are the people that are very, very serious about how people are supposed to act, right? They're very concerned about it. So you would, they show up and you're like, oh, good. They're here to back up John. So many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming for baptism, and he said to them, you brood of vipers. Well, this isn't how I thought it was going to go at all. Uh, he, uh, it's not a way to start a movement. Anyway, uh, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees, every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a little confusing. Here's why this is a little confusing to me. These very serious, these very sophisticated religious leaders show up. So Matthew's already told us that Jesus is not like the earthly kings. He's not like that. There's no life there. He's setting us up for the contrast between uh, the worldly powers, the worldly authorities, the worldly way of managing life, of controlling things, that we manage our life by how much we can hang on to and what we can manage of our own strength, yeah? That's the worldly way. That's Herod's way, yeah? So the other way is then what? It's the religious way, right? So here the religious people show up and he's been calling people to repent and act, right? And the religious people show up and John calls them names. He calls them names. And was like, what are you even doing here? And he calls the religious people to repent. I'm sorry, what then am I supposed to do? If I'm not supposed to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these very, very, I mean, just some of them were just so concerned about, imagine someone who loves rules so much, they take the rules and look at the rules and go, you know what I'm gonna do to help me keep these rules, make more rules? That's these people. That's what they're like. These are rule followers and they show up and he lays into them. And says, listen, you guys don't have it either. They're coming out, who knows, whether just to see what John's doing. Maybe they're going to be baptized just because they think it's the right thing to do for image. Who knows what's happening. But John begins to lecture them about who they are and where they come from. You brood of vipers. What he says is this. You guys sense that the fire is coming and the trees are being cut down and you're just snakes that slithered away from the judgment that's coming. Oh. Somebody gave him a copy of how to win friends and influence people. John lays into their pride. He is offended by their pride. He is, see, here's the deal. If we don't have enough in our own power and our own strength to manage our life, if we don't have enough skill to make sure life goes good, we can at least manage to control our behavior sometimes, yeah? Yeah? 
And, and, and that's what you have. You have this Herods who are controlling everything, building huge palaces, and they have that kind of power. And you have the religious leaders that are using their authority over people, their good behavior, to, to their, their, their pride and their good behavior to make sure that they're okay. And not only that, they're also really proud of who, they're, who they are and what they're, where they're from. They're descendants of Abraham. And so he's like, listen, man, it's not your good works that are gonna save you. You guys are arrogant and prideful. You need to actually live lives that actually look like repentance instead of just walking around being cocky jerks about how good people you are. Also, by the way, I don't want you to think for a second that just because you're descendants of Abraham, that that's gonna save you. Won't work. God can raise up new ones. He doesn't need you. I think that even today, I think today most of the people that struggle to follow Jesus, right? Who, who know about Jesus and struggle to follow Jesus. I think that most of us either are relying on, well, my life's pretty good because I have the skill set to m- provide for myself and to make a pretty good life for myself. And so I rely on the work of my own two hands and I have uh, built all of these things and things are pretty good and as long as things are pretty good, everything's fine. And our tendency is to rely on Herod-like ways or our tendency is to go, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not like them. It's our religious heart jumping up inside of us to be private and go like, well, yeah, but like, I'm not like these people. There's people in the world that shake babies. Huh. How can I have, you know? There's people in the world that kick puppies. Huh. I'm not like them. And we are kind of prou- proud of how good we are. There's a tendency to lean into that and go like, do we go to church? Like, like, and we have a tendency, to, and we, our theology is right, you know? We, we got our theology right, and we take pride in these things, and our heart begins to depend on those things, and as long as I can manage my behavior, everything's gonna be fine. My buddy Brian asked me one time, he, said, he says, he says, why do you think that, that we're the way that we are, that we, that we need these things? And I said, Brian, I, I, I know that I need these things. I think you, you too because uh, I've had the good fortune of nearly destroying my life many, many times. All my good works fell apart so many times. <laughs> they didn't sustain me, and I couldn't lean on that, and I didn't have the skills to provide for myself. And so what am I left with? Well, you know what? I think we can even do this. You know what? Yeah, I, like I live in Alabama, right? Like I'm a Christian. You know I mean? Aren't you just like, aren't you like 70% Christian just by being born here? You know? Like it's kind of the atmosphere. I mean, where else in the world can you just walk into a drugstore and buy a Christian t-shirt? You know, it's just a weird thing, right? But we live here, so that, that we're kind of just surrounded by this stuff, and John, at the very beginning, just begins to lay into these things. None of that will save you. Being like Herod's not going to save you. He's going to die. Depending on your good works, fire's going to come and, root you and purify you. And if all you have left is what you, have, is what you can depend on your good works, all that's going to be burned up. And just being the descendant of Abraham, not going to save you either. But the people who are coming to him being baptized are the ones that are confessing and repenting and being baptized. It's the average person that has the humility to go, I got nothing. That's who is turning. The average person who goes, I got nothing. That's who's coming to John in droves. The people going like, yes, you are right. I cannot. I do need to change. It's not the way of the world. It is not the way of religious practice or knowledge, and it's not the way of association. Those are the things that we still tend to depend on. So if it's not those things, then what? This is what John says. 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I 
whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. He says this. He says, listen, I'm calling you to baptism, to repent. There's one that's coming after me that's gonna do more than that. What I'm calling you to is not enough. You need what's coming after me. You need the one that's coming after me. See, he, here's the thing. All these laws and all these rules, the king's rules that are coming, right? They are so good and so necessary. And I think that we have a tendency to look at the rules and look at, look at God's judgment on our keeping up the rules. At least I do. I don't wanna put this on you, but the way that I tend to think about it is, in, in an unhealthy way, is that God has all these arbitrary rules and he's just like watching, waiting for me to trip up and, 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 you know? and then he's just like annoyed with me constantly because I just can't do it, right? He's just this angry God who just is waiting for me to slip up just to see, just so he can say, see, I told you so. I knew you couldn't do it, you know? But God's judgment is just, an, it's just the other side of his grace. And his laws and his rules, uh, John's rules, uh, his law, his just declaration of the law, like God's coming and, and his rules, you violate them. They bring us up to the very, very edge where we need to be. They bring us to the threshold of the gospel. John says, listen, we've all failed. You have to acknowledge that or you can't take the next step into the gospel. We've all failed. What then do we do? If I can't depend on my own ability, if I can't depend on religion, if I can't depend on where I come from, came from, what do I depend on then? There's one that's coming after me that's gonna do something. He's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. He's gonna make you new inside. This is what he tells him. There's something else besides what I've told you is what he says. And then this happens. Unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to to be baptized by him. And John would prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And Jesus said, let it be so for this is fitting and for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus enters the scene. And he shows up to John. And I love that John, who's had this, like, this, this really fiery sermon, right? Like there's fire coming and you guys are running from fire and God's gonna bring fire. And uh, Jesus shows up and he's like, listen, there's one coming after me. I, I, when he shows up, I, I, you're, not, you're not gonna believe it. And he's gonna baptize you and I'm not even worthy. And Jesus shows up and is like, hey man, I'm, I'm here to be baptized. And John's probably like, hey dude, you're kind of making me look bad. I, I just told those guys that I'm not worthy to do slave work for you. And you want me to baptize you? Dude, I just told them that you were gonna be baptizing with fire. And you're kind of making us look bad, man. Like, John's immediately confused. Like, dude, I can't, like, no. Like, that's not how this is supposed to go. And Jesus says, it has to be this way. And it's just, I mean, can can we just like, isn't it just weird? Isn't it just marvelous that Jesus shows up to be baptized? The humility of this scene, right? The eternal God showing up to be baptized. I mean, who's being baptized? People who said, yes, I've been living wrong and now I need to live this way. That's who's being baptized. And Jesus says, John's like, dude, you don't need to repent. You don't need to confess. You are the eternal son of God. What is happening right now? And there's a lot of things going on, but here's the one thing I want to point out to you this morning. What Jesus is doing is in being baptized, I believe, is he is identifying with those who are humble who say, 
I have nothing. I need God to rescue me. And Jesus is stepping into the waters with him and saying, these are my people. And he's taking them up inside of his life in this amazing way and saying, I will rescue them by identifying with them. I mean, Matthew's been doing this amazing thing. It's been so hard for me not to talk about it until now, but here's what he's been doing. He's been setting us up to say that Jesus, because right after this, he's gonna be baptized, he goes to the water, and he comes out of the water, and he goes down to the desert for 40 days, and then he goes up onto a mountain and begins to give this new law and this new teaching. Matthew's painting this picture that he's the greater Moses who teaches on this mountain like Moses did. He passes through water. He's painting this picture that he's this greater Israel. Right? Because what happened to Israel was they pass through water and they go out in the desert for 40 years and they sin. Jesus passes through water and he goes out in the desert and doesn't sin. He's saying that, that all that his original son, Israel, was supposed to be, all that it was, Jesus is saying, I am so closely identifying and becoming human by going through what they're going through. I'm so closely identifying with them that those who will have me, those who faith are joined to me, those who recognize, who come up to the threshold, the law brings them to the threshold, and they say, what then shall we do? And the answer is, have faith. Those who step into that faith in Jesus Christ are so united to him that what can be said of him can now be said of them. That is how tightly unified they are. So you get to the end of this and the sky splits open, right? And this dove descends, this peace and the spirit descend upon them and this voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If by faith in Jesus, if your power to manage your own life has failed you or is failing you, there's life in Jesus. If your attempts to be good, to hold the right line, to say the right thing, to hold the right theology, to be so good, if that has finally failed you, if your association is not enough, Jesus says if you look at the law, recognize who you are, that you are in need, then step into that, then you are so, by faith in Jesus, you are so closely united with him that what can be said of him, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, can be said of you. This is the story. John says, listen, I'm bringing you to a baptism that takes you to the edge. You need to recognize that this is who you are. So listen, our our job, what we have to do then, right, as Christians, is it's not just this one-time thing. It's constantly examining our lives. Where are places that we are resistant? Where does the law, where do the rules of the king show us that we are falling short? Not because we just gotta try hard and do better, but because where we are falling short of loving our brother as ourselves, where we are falling short as of loving our neighbors ourselves. We're falling short of being forgiving and loving. Where we're falling short of what we're supposed to do and caring for one another. Where we are falling short. It's not just that God is frustrated with us. It's that he knows that it's bad for us. And he wants good for us. So we look for those places where we, you know what? My attitude towards food. I talk about it all the time. Like, and I joke about it all the time, but it's truly like I have an unhealthy attitude towards food. It's a place where I'm resistant <laughs> to God's goodness to me. I don't want there to be seasons of feasting and, and, and famine and or fasting and feasting and, and just normal days. I want every meal to be a feast. My attitude towards gossip, I mean, it's the South, right? Like we got a couple like permissible sins, right? They're, they're food and gossip, right? <laughs> you know? 
but there are places that God says, like, that's not good for you. It's not good for my people. And God's rightly angry, not because we've messed up and he's like, ah, oh, see, I got you. He's mad because what we're doing when we violate his rules is we're, we're, we're launching injustice into the world and doing great damage to our souls and to others. And because of his great love, he says, don't do that. And we say, but I can't stop myself. <laughs> and he's, he's like, look, I've caught, brought to the edge. I've depended on myself as much as I can. And he says, that's right. The threshold of the law brings us to the gospel where we just plunge into the waters with Jesus. And what can be said of him can be said of us. Our life then becomes just this constant confessing and a life of, of, of consistent confession and repentance of places where we are bringing injustice, lies, into our own thinking and feeling and into the world. It is this beautiful gift of this one who came and so closely identified to us that he lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death we never could have died so we could have the eternity that we never deserved. But he does. And he so closely unites himself to us that we now have that life. What a gift to wake up in the morning and go, Hey, tomorrow morning when you wake up, no matter what you do this afternoon, when you wake up in the morning, if you have faith in Christ, if you are pursuing him, if you confess and repent, you are so, tomorrow morning when you wake up, you are so closely united to Christ that what can be said of him can be said of you. And then when tomorrow, when you screw up, right? When you, whatever it is that happens, when, when you don't love like you're supposed to love, and when, you, when you do the things you're not supposed to do and you don't do the things that you're supposed to do, all that that will happen tomorrow in your heart and your thinking, when you believe lies, that the most important thing about you is what's been done to you, or the worst thing that you've ever done is the most important thing about you. When you begin to believe those lies, you can return to the gospel and say, nope, that's not true. The most important thing about me is what has been declared true of Jesus. What? That's so much better than trying to climb the ladder. It's so much better than just trying to be good. It's so much better than depending on where I came from. It is depending upon a savior who has conquered death and hell. This is the gospel and in his introduction. We haven't even heard Jesus' great teaching yet and Matthew is already setting us up for all of this. What a gift. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for what you have shown us, taught us, continually teach us. I just pray that, that man, that I see the beauty of your rules your laws, right? That I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. That those won't save me, but they bring me to the point of recognition that I need saving. To love my wife, to love my son, to love my family, to love this church, to love this city. As you have loved us, man, do I fall short. And it's not good for me. I bring these lies into this into my thinking, these lies into my feeling, these lies of how could you possibly love me? May we all, as we take of the bread and we take of the juice, as we are reminded of the body broken and the blood spilled, that we may have life, that we realize that you have taken us up by faith into you in such a way that we right now are seated at the right hand of God that our eternal security is safe with you where nothing can ever take that away. May we be humbled and overjoyed and live life in light of the joy that we have in Christ. May we just be just our hearts of stone broken by your love. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.